Well, I hope you like that new song. I love it. And uh, in fact, it may sound strange to you, but um, when I first heard that song, I was bummed because I heard it right around Easter time this last spring after we had already picked and practiced all of our music for Easter. And I was like, oh, we got to wait a whole other year to sing this song, this great Easter resurrection morning song. And, uh, and then Billy corrected my theology. <laughs> Billy was leading worship at the time, and I said, Billy, you got to hear this song. It's amazing. It's really awesome. We've got we to gotta teach it to our people. And, but man, we, this, maybe we need to put this on the dock for next, next spring, you know, for Resurrection Sunday. He's like, why wait till next Easter? I mean, I'm, I'm for celebrating the resurrection every Sunday. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah, that's why we meet on Sundays, isn't it? <laughs> we're, we're celebrating the resurrection. So that is why we are here today and not yesterday. Why, why, why didn't we show up yesterday for church? Why, why are we here uh, not on Saturday but on Sunday? Why do Christians worship on Sunday rather than Saturday? One reason, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I find it very interesting and telling that all four Gospels begin their record of Christ's resurrection by noting that it was the, what, first day of the week, Sunday. And ever since Christ rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit uh, on the day of Pentecost, Christ's followers have met to worship Him on the first day of the week, which we now know as the Lord's Day. This is His day today, is the Lord's Day. And uh, thanks to John, we have that title, the Lord's Day, thanks to John, and he didn't mention it here in his gospel, but he later uh, mentions it in the book of Revelation, when he talks about how he saw a vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ on the Lord's Day. And so apparently over time, that the first day of the week, uh, which was how Sunday was often referred to, at least by Paul in 1 Corinthians and other places, uh, became known by the end of John's life as the Lord's Day. And so whether you realize it or not, the fact that we are gathered here today to worship the Lord on His day, on Sunday, is one of the strongest proofs that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. How how do we get from worshiping on Saturday to, to Sunday? James Montgomery Boyce makes this point well. He says one of the great evidences of the resurrection is the unexpected and unnatural change of the day of worship from Saturday, the Jewish day of worship, to Sunday in Christian services. Nothing but the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday explains it. And so here we are this morning, by the sheer fact we're meeting together, we are proving that Jesus rose from the dead. We are proclaiming his resurrection just by gathering together this morning. Well, last uh, time we were together in, in the Gospel of John, two weeks ago, we saw how John, like the other three Gospel writers, ended his account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ by describing how he rose from the dead exactly like he promised that he would. And Christ's resurrection, we said last time, was, was the greatest miracle that Jesus performed, and it confirmed all the other miracles that he'd already 
performed. This was his magnum opus, if you will. And in John's mind, it served as the final, ultimate proof that Jesus is the Son of God. And he's getting to his, his, his thesis statement, if you will, in uh, chapter 20, verse 30. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. And so here in this chapter, John explains how he came to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Not based on Scripture, per se, initially, but on, the, on simply the evidence he saw when he visited the tomb in which Jesus had been buried. And what he concluded from that empty tomb was confirmed by the appearances of Jesus to him and other followers after that, of the ten appearances uh, in the New Testament of the resurrected Lord Jesus, John included four of them in these last two chapters, chapter 20 and chapter 21 of his gospel. Uh, we see Mary Magdalene, we're going to look at that this morning, the disciples, uh, we'll see this Lord willing next week, the disciples without Thomas, and then the disciples with Thomas, and then in chapter 21, we see the disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee witness the resurrected Lord Jesus. Again, these appearances of the resurrected Lord Jesus in chapters 20 and 21, I believe in John's mind, are the crowning proof that Jesus is God's Son. And as such, He is the source of eternal life for all who believe in Him. And so let's revisit the passage that we started looking at last week, or two weeks ago, I should say, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. John records, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first, and stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. And that's where we stopped last week. But let's continue to read verse 11 through 18. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting out, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Well, here we have, in these first 18 verses of chapter 20, John sharing his own personal eyewitness testimony as the first person to believe in Jesus' resurrection, along with the testimony of Mary Magdalene, who was the first person to see Jesus after his resurrection. And so last week, we, or two weeks ago, we looked at uh, John as the first one to believe in the resurrected Lord, and this morning we're going to look at the first one to behold the resurrected Lord. Now, just by way of review, you remember that we said that in order to prevent Jesus' disciples from, from stealing Jesus' body and claiming that he rose from the dead, the Jewish religious leaders appealed to Pilate to have Jesus' tomb uh, sealed and guarded. And yet, that didn't stop God from rolling away the stone through means of a severe earthquake and a couple of strong angels that he sent from heaven. And again, I think it's important that we remember here that God didn't open up the tomb to let Jesus out. He opened up the tomb to let the disciples in, right, to see that he wasn't there. And so after reporting or hearing the report from <coughs> excuse me, Mary Magdalene that the stone in front of Jesus' tomb had been rolled away, Peter and John immediately took off running toward the garden where Jesus had been buried. John arrived first uh, as the younger, quicker of the two. But he didn't go right in. He waited outside. He just kind of peeked in uh, and saw the grave clothes lying there. And as soon as Peter arrived, he didn't wait, right? Uh, he just rushed right in and he surveyed the situation. And we mentioned how John makes a big deal about the condition of the grave clothes, the linen wrappings. And he takes a couple of verses to describe that. And obviously he had a purpose in that. And I think the fact that Jesus' body wasn't, wasn't there, but his grave clothes were still lying there undisturbed, ruled out foul play. And I think that was, was his point. Any grave robber uh, would have either tore the stuff off quickly and left it scattered all over the tomb, or, or they would have just picked up the, uh, the rat body and ran. Um, and so the orderly arrangement here of the linens and, and, and the carefully rolled up head coverings indicate that, that, that no struggle had taken place here in that, in that tomb. And so when John finally got up the guts or whatever and entered the tomb, he sized up the scene and he instantly drew the conclusion. The natural conclusion is what? Jesus is alive. And that's what he says in verse 8. So the other disciple had first come to the tomb, then also, that's he speaking of himself, and he saw and believed. But notice verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. You say, well, how did he believe if he didn't understand the scripture? Well, again, he hadn't connected the dots here between what he had seen and heard Jesus say and do and the passages about the Messiah in the Old Testament being resurrected. Excuse me. So John's initial experiential faith here needed to be verified through the objective truth of Scripture, which Jesus uh, is about to do, and we're going to see that 
you see it even more in Matthew and, and, and Luke, how he, brought, he sat the disciples down and connected the dots with them. The, my favorite story is the disciples on the Emmaus Road, where he just explained the scriptures and how uh, Jesus had fulfilled everything, especially uh, the, the passage about the resurrection. So we ended last time talking about our salvation depends on not only comprehending what the Bible teaches about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but openly confessing, right, that we believe that and committing our entire life and eternal destiny to it. Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth, what? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised from the dead, you will be, what, saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So do you publicly profess Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Do you publicly profess that? And do you actually believe that God raised him from the dead? You must do both of those things in order to be saved. And so we learn that from the example of the first one to believe in the resurrected Lord. Now let's move on this morning and talk about Mary Magdalene, the first one to behold the resurrected Lord. And uh, for the purposes of his gospel, John chose to zero in or focus in on Mary Magdalene, who was the first woman that Jesus appeared to on Easter morning. You say, well, I thought there was a bunch of women. Well, that's true. But Mark 16.9 actually says that Mary was the first one to see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. I also think it's interesting here, the fact that Jesus appeared to a woman first is significant because in those days, women were looked down upon. They were not considered a credible witness. In fact, their testimony was normally not admissible in court. You say, what's the point? Well, this is further evidence that this is true. One commentator said it this way, that a woman would be the first to see Jesus is a mark of the narrative of narrative's historicity. <clears throat> In other words, we know that this is not just something that John made up. He goes on, he says, no Jewish author in the ancient world would have invented a story with a woman as the first witness to this most important event. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't just come up with a story and say, oh, by the way, a woman was the one who saw it. People would laugh you off. What are you kidding me? We're not going to believe that. So the fact that he put in here about a woman, it know, we know it's true. The commentator goes on, furthermore, Jesus may have introduced himself to Mary first because she had so earnestly sought him. That's precious to think about. Why Mary? Why not somebody else? <coughs> well, we were introduced to Mary last week in verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. Mary was from the village of Magdala, which is on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. She was a woman out of which Jesus had cast seven demons. We know that from Luke chapter 8, verse 2. She was also a woman of means who financially supported Jesus and his disciples as they traveled around. And according to the three Gospels, she was just one of several women who had witnessed Jesus' death and burial and had come back 
the next uh, Sunday there, the two days later, three days later, with these burial spices to finish anointing Jesus' body. Apparently, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had done the best they could, but they were short on time, and so there was more work to be done, and they were coming to do that. And it appears that Mary may have arrived earlier than the rest of them. It says that she came early to the tomb while it was still dark. Whereas Mark says the other ladies came after the sun had risen or when the sun had risen. And so that's why somehow they got separated or they were coming at different times. But when she arrived, uh, as we learned a couple weeks ago, she noticed that the large stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb, uh, Joseph of Arimathea had made sure that that tomb was secure, being his tomb. Before he left on Friday night, he had sealed it. And so she assumed that someone had tampered with Jesus' body. And so she ran off to tell Peter and John. And we looked at that last week. Now, let's come back to verse 11. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Well, Mary may have accompanied Peter and John back to the tomb. Maybe she followed them as they were running. She was running behind them, couldn't keep up. They left. Maybe she lingered there after they returned to the upper room. Or she may have come back to the tomb after Peter and John uh, had left. We're not sure exactly. Regardless of the timeline, Mary was there grieving the loss of her beloved Lord, who had graciously, mercifully rescued her from bondage to Satan. I mean, this, this lady was demon-possessed. And so she was indebted to him, and she had witnessed his awful death, uh, this man that she loved so dearly, and now his body was missing, which just added to her sense of grief and loss. Oftentimes, you know, while we know that a person, when they die, they, they go to heaven, they go to be with the Lord, but it, it's helpful to have a place, right? A, a tombstone, a grave, uh, a memorial, somewhere where you can go, and, and, and it's a physical way for you to mourn and to grieve, and now she had nothing. She, all she had was this empty tomb. Imagine going to visit your loved one at the graveside or the cemetery and uh, there was just a big old hole in the ground. That would unnerve you a little bit, I would think, right? You go visit Uncle Bob and you go there and there's, he's not there. And so this was a very traumatic scene for Mary and yet the Lord was about to be very gracious and very merciful to her once again by turning her mourning into dancing and loosing her sackcloth and girding her with gladness. Psalm 30, verse 5 and verse 11 talks about weeping may last for the night, but a shot of joy comes in the morning. She was, she'd been weeping for the last few days, right? And now the morning was to come and there was going to be a shot of joy and she was going to go from mourning to, to dancing and she was going to be able to take her sackcloth off and, and she was going to be able to rejoice with gladness. By the way, that is ultimately, the, the, the fact that Jesus is alive, we just sang that, he's alive, that is the ultimate reason why we can rejoice in the midst of suffering. That while we weep and while we mourn and while we grieve and while we go through trials, where's the joy in the midst of all that? It's knowing that he's alive. And we need to learn to uh, 
harness up the resurrection, if you will, the, the knowledge that Christ is alive when we're faced with difficult trials, that, that, hey, listen, no matter what I'm going through or what I might go through in the future, guess what? Jesus is alive. I have a resurrected Lord who has always been and will always be. And so I love that song that we sing typically only on Easter, uh, Because He Lives, by Bill Gaither. You're familiar with that? God sent His Son. They called Him Jesus. He came to love and heal and forgive. He lived and died to buy my pardon. An empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives. And then the chorus says, Because He lives, I can what? Face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. What a great expression of faith, and uh, I hope that uh, there's some application questions there uh, on your sheet this morning that will get you to grapple with, okay, what are you going through right now in your life, and how does the resurrection, how does the knowing that Jesus is alive impact you and and impact your perspective in the midst of the trial that you're going through? There's power there. And so here's Mary standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And it says, verse 12, she saw two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they've laid him. Now, you might be thinking... Why wasn't Mary more stunned by the sight of these two angels? Well, we need to remember that angels oftentimes, and maybe most often, in the scriptures, appeared in human form. They just look like another dude. No halos, no wings, right? Uh, They look like people. And so she didn't necessarily know that they were angels. They were just two guys sitting in there. Um. And this is, by the way, the only time that angels are mentioned in John's gospel, <clears throat> but it shouldn't surprise us because uh, that the angels are present at resurrection because they were also there to announce Christ's birth. Uh, they, will, they will be there to announce Christ's return, his eternal reign. And if you know anything about the scriptures, you know that angels always seem to show up in the scriptures uh, at strategic moments in God's plan of salvation. Anything major happening there's going to be a few angels around, part of the action. Notice verse 14, when they said, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. You say, how is that possible? I mean, here's here's Jesus, and how did she not recognize him? I mean, she thought he was who? The gardener. Well, it may have been that it was still dark, so it was hard for her to see who that was. Uh, her eyes may have been blurred by tears. Or Jesus' resurrection body uh, may have looked dramatically different than, than when she saw him last. If you remember the last time she saw him, his, it says that he was beaten beyond human recognition. And now he had his glorified body. And so maybe um, that's why she didn't recognize him. Uh, maybe she was just so grief-stricken that in her mind, <clears throat> it was, she was just unable to fathom the fact that, that Jesus had risen from the dead. It's interesting, one of the 
one of the things liberals say to explain away the resurrection is, oh, the disciples, they just hallucinated. They, they wanted to see Jesus so bad, they just thought they saw Jesus. Well, this is a good example. That's, re- that's ridiculous because nobody expected to see Jesus. This was an absolute shock to them. I think probably the best conclusion of why she didn't recognize him right away uh, it's just like the disciples on the Emmaus Road. Mary, Mary was supernaturally prevented from recognizing Jesus until he chose to reveal himself to her. Let's look back at Luke chapter 24, verse 16. That's what happened. It says, their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. So Jesus didn't want them to recognize him yet. He wanted to give them a chance to wrestle through the scriptures together. And then it says, Later on in verse 31, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Again, this is a good reminder to us that in order for us to grasp the truth of Christ's resurrection, it requires spiritual illumination. If you believe in the resurrection, that you really believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you didn't figure that out yourself. You would have never figured that out yourself. You would have simply sitting there going, this guy is stupid. He's telling us that Jesus rose from the dead. That, that is so ignorant. It says that's dumb. It's nonsense. But because it's not nonsense to you, the reason why it's not nonsense to you sitting here this morning is because the Spirit of God has illuminated your mind. He opened up your heart so that the resurrection is no longer foolishness. And thank the Lord for 1 Corinthians 2.14, right? That the things of God are, are foolishness to those until the Spirit of God reveals them to you. Notice verse 15, Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. So Jesus again thinks this guy's the, the guy who takes care of the garden and she asked him if he, he had moved Jesus' body somewhere and where is it so I can care for it? Again, this is a, a, just another expression of her great love and devotion for her precious Lord and Savior. I mean, seriously, Mary, you're going to carry Jesus' body somewhere? Especially if it's got 100 extra pounds with all the spices. But again, she wasn't even thinking about that. She just wanted to know where he was, and she was going to do whatever it took to get his body to where it needed to be. And and again, just beyond human comprehension, this, this great devotion, great love for her Lord. And then I love this, verse 16 Jesus said to her, Mary. I mean, that's, that's one of those ones I want to, I hope they DVR'd in heaven, right? So you can go back and watch that scene. And, and just, just, I just want to see what that, I want to see the expression on her face, right? And it just, just it, that's a, what an amazing scene that was when, well, it must have been when he just said her name. And it says, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, So as soon as Jesus called her by name, Mary immediately recognized his familiar voice. It it reminds us of what Jesus said back in chapter 10, John 10, verse 3. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls out his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice voice. And then verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. A great example of Mary responding to her Savior's, her shepherd's voice. 
And she responds by calling him Rabboni, which meant teacher. And this was a, a, a Jewish term that was used to show respect and to address someone of a higher rank. This is probably what Mary regularly called Jesus. And so she reengages him here. Verse 17, uh, what some say is one of the, the hardest verses in the New Testament to interpret or explain. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to heaven. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. I would imagine like the other women who would eventually see Jesus, they, she fell at his feet and clung to him. Just, just grabbed a hold of him. Wasn't about to let him go. I, I lost you once. I'm not about to lose you again. I mean, she may have supposed that this was the return of Christ, the, the second coming that he had promised the disciples back in chapter 14, verse 3. Remember, he talked about going away. He said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Well, guess what? He went away, and now he's back. So she could have very well thought, that, hey, this is it. This is, the, this is the second coming. This is the resurrection. This is the, this, this is the return. This is what he was talking about. This is what he promised. And Jesus corrects her in saying, hey, stop clinging to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father. Whoa, time out. You're getting ahead of yourself here, okay? A lot has to happen before I return, before my second coming. Some, some would say that Jesus was telling her not to touch him because he didn't want her to defile his resurrected body before he returned to heaven. Uh, I think he was simply wanting her to know that, hey, listen, I know you want me to stay and you want to hang on to my physical presence here, but you can let me go back to, I got, I got, I got work to do. I, I got to go ascend back to heaven and, and you're going to have to learn to rely on the helper who I'm going to send to take my place. And again, when we went through that in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, uh, it, it's mind-boggling to think that it's better to have Jesus in heaven, right, and not right here with us. We, we would all think, well, if you had a choice between Jesus and the Holy Spirit, I'm taking Jesus. Am I talking about Jesus, like hanging out with me, like real life Jesus on this planet, still walking, with, walking and talking with I'll take Jesus any day. And Jesus said, no, nah, time out. It is better that I go back to heaven and send you the Holy Spirit. So we're better off. This is amazing to think about. We are better off today as Christians having the Holy Spirit, having Jesus in heaven and the Holy Spirit in us than if we lived back during the days of Jesus and we got to walk and talk with Jesus in person. We're better off today. I should tell you something about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so here was Mary just clinging on to Jesus and, and never wanted him to ever go away again. And he just was saying, hey, Mary, I'm, I'm, I'm not here to stay. And I think practically speaking, when he says, stop clinging to me, for I've not yet ascended to the Father, the next thing he says, I think, it helps us interpret what he meant by Stop clinging to me. He says, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. In other words, Mary, you, you can't just sit at my feet here and just soak in the blessing of my presence. I, I, I've got a job for you to do. 
He wanted her to let go of him to go tell the disciples that he was alive and was going back to heaven. And this would require her getting up and leaving his presence in order to proclaim the good news uh, to others who needed to hear. I think there's a good analogy for us, right? We, we love as Christians to be in God's presence, to be here in church and to be around like-minded believers and it's safe, it's comfortable and we're growing and we're learning and it's like we're clinging to Jesus here this morning and we're spending time in his word and, and if we had our choice, we would just sit here all, all day, all week. But again, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you, you need to go. There, there's people out there that need to hear the gospel. Bruce Milne, one uh, commentator that I've really grown to appreciate as we've studied the Gospel of John together, he says this, quote, Mary is commissioned to take the glad news of his rising to the other disciples. She should not go on clinging to Jesus and enjoying the blessing of it when there was a group of broken men and women no great distance away who had as much need and right as she to know of his rising. And then he makes the application here. Tragically, over the centuries... The Christian community has shown a far greater interest in sitting at Jesus' feet, holding on to him amid the comfort of his presence, than in going out into the world to share the good news of the risen Lord with broken, needy hearts who have as valid a claim to know of him as we. What a great reminder for us this morning, right? That when we leave this place, uh, we're going to tell people that Jesus is alive and that he can change their life. Uh, as, as the, the story in the Old Testament, when the lepers, right, when the, the lepers had got kicked out of the, the city and they went out and they, they realized that the, the army had been defeated and they were walking through the camp and they were devouring all their food and going, hey, this is great. And then they stopped and they go, wait a minute, this is a day of good news. This is a day of good news. We, we can't just hog this to keep this to ourselves. Let's go into the city and tell them. And they were concerned, but we're lepers. What will they say? What will they think? What will they do? And they said, we don't care. This is the day of good news. We've got to tell them. And see, we can go out of here thinking, well, what are they going to say? What are they going to do? What are they going to think? How are they going to treat us? Who cares? This is the day of good news. They've got to hear the news. They've got to know. Don't miss this at the end of that. Verse 17 Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Something changed. Because Jesus had never referred to his disciples as brethren up until this point. In fact, back in John 15... 15, he says, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Well, that's better. They went from slaves to friends. I'm feeling a little bit better about my relationship with Jesus now. I'm his friend, but now he's saying, you're my what? Brother. You're my family member. Again, this is the first time that Jesus ever referred to his disciples, his followers, as his brethren. And that, guess what? Jesus is no longer just my father, right? He's, we, we know it was all about I and the father, 
are one, and he talked about God, he referred to God as his father all the time. Now he's saying, oh, by the way, he's just not my father, he's what? Your father. And so again, this, this little expression here, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father, your father, my God, your God. Now, this is just pregnant with meaning here for us as Christians. And because of the work of God's Son completed through His death and resurrection, we have a new relationship with God. And we see this throughout the, the New Testament. Romans chapter 8, for example, verse 14, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, for we have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but we have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Just a few verses here that uh, talk about this new relationship. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And then Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says, For it is fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. He goes on to talk in verse 13, I will put my trust in him again. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. I mean, could anything be more astounding than that? That he, that he has made us. Jesus said, hey, you guys are my brothers. You're my sisters. We're, we're, we're all in the family now. James Montgomery Boyce says this, justification is overwhelming enough, for it is all of grace. God did not need to justify us. Having justified us, he could still have left us on a much inferior level of status and privilege, but he has gone far beyond what he, we could ever conceive of or expect by taking us into his family where our status and privilege are that of daughters and sons. So great is God's condescension in this act of adoption that we would be inclined to dismiss this relationship, thinking it presumption. It would be presumptuous to consider ourselves sons and daughters of God. He says, were it not that God had made a special effort to seal these truths to our hearts. It's all over Scripture. He's reminding us over and over and again, guess what? You're a son. You're a daughter. You're, you're, you're a brother, sister. You're, you're a co-heir with Christ. And so whether you're young in the Lord or you've been walking with the Lord your entire life, guess what? With God as your Father, He is caring for you, He's walking with you, He's guiding you all the way until you get home to heaven. But notice, Jesus was careful to make a distinction here. He says, but I go to my brother and say to them, I send to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. See, he's making a distinction there. 
While we're all brethren, we're all co-heirs now, there's still a separation in that, 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 that I, Jesus is saying, I'm the son of God by nature, you are son by adoption. That he was still the eternal son and equal with the father and we're not and we never will be. But the encouraging thing is that those who place their faith in Jesus Christ become members of his family with God as their father and Jesus as their brother. John said at the very beginning, he kicked off his gospel in chapter 1, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so through faith in Christ, we are granted this new relationship with the Father, which, by the way, also applies to our relationship with each other. We're granted a new relationship with each other. Before we came to Christ, right, if, if, God is our, if we are sons and daughters of God, what does that make us? Brothers and sisters. And, and before we came to Christ, we were all out there going our own way, doing our own thing. Oftentimes, it put us at odds with one another. But guess what? Now we have been brought together as brothers and sisters who must learn to love each other and live and serve together. And listen, that's not an easy thing to do. Because apart from our commonality in Christ, a lot of us in this room don't have very much in common, do we? We come from different backgrounds, we, we, we have different uh, social structures, we, there's tons of stuff that, that, that make us different from each other, and yet because of our commonality in Christ, we, we need to remember we're brothers and sisters, and so we need to be loyal to one another, even if we don't like each other. Come on, let's be honest, okay? Some of the people in this room are not your favorite people in the world. They irritate you at times, right? It might even be in your own family, right? They irritate you. But the point is that, 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 listen, we may irritate one another, we may offend one another, but we're still, what, brothers and sisters, and we need to learn to get along. And, 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 and at the end of the day, what, family is what matters, right? John White said this, you were cleansed by the same blood regenerated by the same spirit, you are a citizen of the same city, a slave to the same master, a reader of the same scriptures, a worshiper of the same God, the same presence dwells silently in in you as in them, therefore you are committed to them and they to you, they are your brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, children in God, whether you like them or dislike them, you belong to them. There's the old statement, you can't pick your family, right? You just kind of... You were born into the family that God wanted you to be born into. And guess what? It applies to the church. You can't pick your family. We are who we are. And and so you you go with it. You live with it. You you, you work at it. And so we need to be intensely committed to each other and, and just work to help each other live the Christian life. And so as one commentator said, in Christ we are granted a new relationship with the Father, we're granted new relatives, new family members, and we also are given a new responsibility. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Mary obeyed Christ's command 
to go and tell the brethren that I'm going back to heaven, right? And so she immediately left to report to the disciples what she had seen, what she had heard. Mary was the apostle to the apostles. And she was just given this, this honor and privilege of being the first one, not only to see Jesus, but the first one to be able to announce the good news of the empty tomb. And what a radiant testimony. She just shows up and says, I've seen the Lord. I mean, you say, well, I don't know what to say. I, uh, I, you know, I always get uh, tripped up and I have an opportunity to share the gospel. And man, I just, my mind goes blank and I just don't know what to say. And I, and I, well, why don't you just tell them you've seen the Lord? That's pretty simple, doesn't it? I've seen the Lord. In other words, I have come to know the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Guess what? All of us have this same privilege, the same honor that was given to Mary. Every day of our lives, we get to tell other people that Christ is risen. And that's what Jesus told his disciples before he left. That was the commission that he gave them in, in, in Matthew chapter 28. Verse 16, the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated where he was going to ascend. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, all authority has been given to me, uh, given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I even like uh, Luke's rendition, if you will, of the Great Commission. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Guess what? We're sitting here studying God's word. You're a witness of these things. That means when we go out these doors, right, we need to be witnesses. We need to proclaim the good news of salvation. I appreciate the I've been in churches where they've actually put over the door uh, as you leave, a little, little sign over the, uh, the exit doors that say, you are now entering the mission field. It's a great reminder, right? That we gather to grow to go. We gather to grow to go. And when you go, don't be surprised or discouraged when people don't believe the gospel and considered a bunch of nonsense. We talked about this last week. That was the initial response of the disciples to Mary. In, in Mark chapter 16, verse 9, now after he'd risen early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and reported to those who had been with him while they were mourning and weeping, and when they heard that he was alive and had, had, seen, had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Now, these are the disciples. And if they refuse to believe it, why wouldn't you assume that unbelievers are just going to refuse to believe it? And then in Luke chapter 24, verse 11, it's even more specific here. When Mary and the other women were telling to the apostles that they had seen the Lord, 
it says these words appear to them as nonsense and they would not believe them. Expect that response. Expect that response. I mean, if these are Jesus' disciples, why wouldn't you assume that that's what unbelievers, how they're going to respond to? So expect that. But guess what? These disciples eventually did believe and their lives were radically transformed and they went from these uh, doubting, uh, wimpy, if you will, scared group of men to these bold, vibrant witnesses for Christ who turned the world upside down. And the resurrection became the centerpiece of the gospel message that they preached. And it needs to be the centerpiece of the gospel that we preach as well. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the reality that you are alive today. And Lord, we we haven't even begun to, to comprehend the practical reality of the resurrection of Jesus to our lives today. Obviously, what, what a joy, what a privilege, what an honor it is to, to be witnesses of the resurrection, to be able to go around and tell people at work and at school and in our neighborhoods and our communities that, that Jesus is alive and, and that he can change their life. I pray you'd help us to be faithful to that task, Lord, that you gave Mary and that you've given to us as well. And Lord, for those of us who might be going through difficult times and suffering physically or relationally or financially or, or in any other way, Lord, that we would remember that you're alive. And that should change the way we think about our trial, our temptation, our tribulation, whatever it is that we're going through. I pray that you'd help us to see the, the practical implications of the resurrection to our everyday lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.